0: Hello and welcome to this HemeCast where I'm delighted to be joined by Luke Pembroke from HemeNet and also by Declan Neune, who you all know I'm sure is the president of the European Haemophilia Consortium. We're going to be talking about risk assessment, benefits and shared decision making in the process of deciding whether gene therapy is the right thing for you or not. So Declan, I think we have spoken a lot at recent meetings about the benefits of gene therapy. Would you just give us a brief update of what you think they are?
1: Thanks Kate and thanks for having me on. So the benefits of gene therapy are really advantage in terms of reducing bleeding, the factor levels that are full factor eight levels, which is important in terms of measuring a, a treatment, They're, it's durable. This is an interesting conversation on what is durable and how durable it is, but it is lasting for a number of years if you get a response. There's th- those benefits of uh, higher factor levels for joint protection that we've seen and had talked about in terms of... The factor eight historically, you know, we've always said above twelve percent gives you uh, better joint protection from from traumatic bleeds. So I think those type of conversations are still really important. And there's also the improved quality of life, which I think a couple of studies have measured and uh, shown. And at, at a recent meeting, you highlighted this conversation that yes, we are still measuring improved quality of life. And the big benefit in terms of comfort of that conversation is freedom. I think. It's one that is probably the most important and also the hardest to quantify. How do you measure that freedom of not having to think about my factor on a regular basis or not having to think about my treatment on a Monday or, oh, hey, we're going ice skating tonight. Do you want to come? And and that possibly could be gone. So so Mm -hmm. that piece is the bit that I find really interesting and the really big benefit, but really struggle to measure it.
2: (laughs) I like that one, Declan, because... It's that time of year when ice skating is, yeah. uh, is on the social calendar and having fallen over and smacked my uh, eyebrow and cut it open on the ice once in front of a bunch of my friends at school. I then had to worry about getting home to take a treatment because I was like, I'm not going to be able to relax for the rest of the evening because I, I don't want to risk it. So yeah, that that's made me laugh thinking back to that and yeah. how you do worry about not only... Before it happens, in terms of what your factor levels are, but when something goes wrong, you're like, okay, it's this is maybe going to require another dose,
1: or or I have you you expect you plan to have it tomorrow morning, and then you, oh, do I have to think? And just taking that little bit away, that 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 concept of I I can just go and do things. So Mark Skinner talks about it as the spontaneity of life, and it, it I really. Can't even imagine what that feels like. You know, it's improved in terms of treatments over the last number of years and with the subcutaneous treatments and with the higher factor levels generally being achieved. And I know you, know, you talked to some of the Canadian guys and they have, in order to do ice hockey, I feel like I'm promoting very <laughs> like hardcore sports. I'm not. In Ireland, you have hurling. and In Canada, you have these sports at a younger age in particular where you want to get involved in and it's a big community conversation. And some of those people take treatment every day just so they can have that social interaction. Mm. And that social interaction is incredibly important. And that's you know where the gene therapy space could be really, really beneficial to maintain that social interaction, to, to be part of peer groups, not to continue their professional ice hockey or hurling career. But it's just so important when you talk to people And it's really hard to get our heads around the benefits of of that.
0: So I think that's really interesting. So you've just talked about two things there. One is spontaneity. The other is the ability to be able to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it, which I guess is also spontaneity. (laughs) And they're things that those of us that don't have haemophilia never even think about. So if I want to go out now and go ice skating, I don't, um, but I could just do it. So clearly the benefits of gene therapy are huge, but how, what about the risks? How do we educate people that are, might be thinking about having gene therapy about the risks so that it's not just seeing all those very lovely positives?
1: Yeah, so, so, so the risks have added in terms of the conversation over the last two, three years. So we we, we have had the conversation around integration, which is the virus um, getting into the DNA, and the, the vector for the gene therapy uh, getting into the DNA. and. That has been measured at, at relatively small amounts, but it does uh, integrate. We've had conversations on hepatotoxicity, which is you know the liver's response to the size of the or the amount of the vector. We've had conversations on immunogenicity. In a couple of studies as well, we've seen thrombosis being issued, factor levels that are over 150% level. We can discuss assays if you want, but we'll, we'll say a very high level. And then recently in some of the other gene therapy studies, not in hemophilia, we've seen conversations on neurotoxicity and, and, and TMAs. So these are starting to mount in terms of our knowledge of gene therapies and the balance then becomes how much you're, you're willing to give up in terms of that safety risk for that freedom and the other levels of protection that we talk about. For me, as I think forward, I, I break it down to seven main questions. So have I compared my expectations to other available potential therapies? So that's licensed or in clinical trials or licensed and not available in my country yet. So have I compared what I want to them? Am I comfortable with responses between zero and 150% because I can't say what as an individual I'm going to get, so am, am I happy with that space? If I do get a response bearing in mind that I possibly may not, am I comfortable with it lasting anything from three years to a lifetime? Am I comfortable with the, the conversation on steroids and immunosuppressants? Luke has talked about this in other arenas and, and that is something that is becoming more of a conversation and that can last up to a year. Am I comfortable with some trials? Again, you know, this will be important in your conversation around the trials with that particular trial or that particular licensed product with your clinician? Am I comfortable with the possible need of actually coagulants if I get a very high response? And am I comfortable with the current known risks that I know about? This is Glenn Pierce's wonderful review of the, I can never get it right and it's always really hard, so I won't even go into it. And then am I comfortable with the potential unknown risks? So the stuff we don't know, we don't know. If I can answer yes, I'm comfortable to all of them then I I have sat down and and gone through all of the information available with another peer or with the clinician or the nurse or the gene therapy expert. And even if I say yes to all of them, it doesn't mean I I want gene therapy. It's just like I have enough information to really think about making an informed decision on whether the risks and the benefits are balanced out correctly. Mm -hmm. Luke, you might have a different consideration on that.
2: I would 100% agree. And when you talk about those seven steps that you need to run through and think about, it's definitely something that resonates with me when I think about myself weighing up the risks and benefits. And I always tell people there was no one main reason why I went for gene therapy. It was a multitude of reasons, both personal and also thinking about the benefit to the community. Because, of course, I think this is probably an important point for us to acknowledge and pick up on that I was enrolling as part of a clinical trial. And I've also had discussions with Brian about this, and I've heard him talk about it at meetings, that going into the trial, we had our expectations that we set out and we recognized that there's no guarantee that this will work and you assume that risk. But then I guess I would be interested to get your thoughts on suddenly how does that, risk benefit assessment change as we approach an approved gene therapy era yeah so i think i think the difference is
1: possibly we have more information so we're approximately moving forward in a direction that we think we know so there's a really good english marketeer who talks on risk in terms of say an ongoing treatment versus a chronic or sorry, like a gene therapy so in you know factor concentrator the bispecific antibodies you're effectively playing archery so you aim for the middle and then the next time what you're trying to do is you're aiming for the middle again and you just keep aiming for the middle with the injection. The whereas uh, gene therapy is more of a dart board and incidentally so, aside from, if you want to actually get a higher score or more likely to win in darts you aim for the southwestern quadrant and when you're throwing a single dart at a dartboard, you might miss, and I or, or you might get anything on that spectrum. So that I think that's where you have stepped in as a clinical trial, like you, the full gambit of absolutely nothing to no idea what the top end is, no idea what the issues are. When you step in as a clinical trial, yes, we have that, but because you and uh, many like you have put yourselves forward we now have okay what we're doing in terms of dose relating is we've got that southwest quadrant we've got the, we we have a range more or less of what we can get and what we're targeting and you may have to trade off um, different aspects but i can give you a range you're still throwing a dart as a scientist, we can say those the medians, the means are important. The understanding of the interquartile range to give us an idea of where the majority are going to land. But you, as an individual, it it, it is still going to be quite different. And the trial sizes are small, but they still give us a lot of information. So I, th- I think that conversation just needs to be brought out as an individual.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on that as I know it's something we spoke about in the past, and I think be good to get you to expand on it for those listening in who perhaps might be from the patient community and hear a lot about gene therapy results and see these numbers from the data, which of course you've said are often median and means, but when it comes to the individual decision-making process and weighing up the risk and benefit and my benefit might be, I get this factor level. What are the kind of pitfalls on the individual level of becoming focused on that? great great question. So for me, I learned
1: a lot about my factor level when I, I entered into a clinical study rather than a clinical trial in terms of our all factor replacements and I would have been okay in terms of my adherence. I'd, I'd been on the uh, the upper or uh, concordance, sorry Kate I would have been on the <laughs> upper end of in the 80 percent, but I would still be bleeding having a one percent trough. Then the, with that study and, and really personalization, it, I, I ended up having to move to a 3 to 5% trough to stop bleeding because there was joint damage, there was joint swelling, etc. I do like the denule 12% protection from traumatic situations. That kind of 12 to 20% range is important in something randomly happens. You're playing with your kids and they jump on top of you and knee you in the head or the stomach or like walk into the side of a door, you drop a weight on your foot. Any of those type of things protect you from that traumatic bleeding. And then above that is the amount of protection that we need to think about, not for tomorrow or the next day, but for 20, 30, 40 years down the line. With the mild core, that five to 40% range, I still see people in that range through the societies who have joint damage, who do have soreness, who have ankle arthropathy, who are starting to develop more than one or two bleeds a year because their levels are lower than normal.
0: I was just going to say, so do you think we've set the bar too high in talking about gene therapy as the cure that makes everybody have normal factor levels and actually what we're doing is converting somebody with severe haemophilia into somebody who has a different severity of haemophilia, be that mild or moderate?
1: So I don't think we've aimed too high. I, I, I think the the expectation should be that it's normal. Now, I tr- I'm trading off certain aspects. The same way I'm trading off with or my current therapy. I trade off every second day because my veins can't handle it. Because... I can't get a, uh, I, I trade off a higher factor, a higher level of protection because my veins can't handle the, the infusion. So so that trade-off is something that, that we're used to, but I think the, the trade-off itself is possibly different to how you manage the situation in reality. So ideally, that's what I could possibly aim for, but in terms of that protection, if I'm not very active... And I've pretty good joints, and I've always had a low bleeding phenotype. Maybe a lower level is sufficient. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm not saying it's recommended, but it will get you through and leave you with maybe aches and pains in a couple of years' time. But if you're very active um, and have a high bleeding tendency, then gene therapy won't won't rem- won't bring back the damage that's done in your joints, but you know may limit the amount of damage that is there in the future. And I think we do have to have the goal and the aim to be in the normal range, but at the same time, just because the reality is not quite that doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't enjoy or aim for the protection that works best for you.
0: I'm going to get ever so slightly off tack here with a bit of a wacky question that's just occurred to me while while you've been talking about that. So at the moment, there's quite a lot of focus on people with moderate and mild haemophilia and why they aren't on prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. So if we convert somebody with severe haemophilia into, say, somebody with a level of 7 after gene therapy, Mm -hmm. but they are that sporty person, and you've just said that you've seen people with mild and moderate haemophilia who have joint damage should we be thinking of gene therapy as an adjunctive treatment? So you get gene therapy alongside some kind of prophylaxis, be that tailored around risky activity or regular. So you've got your your baseline level is five or seven or 12 or whatever. And then you have your doses of factor eight or nine to get you into the normal range to do your risky thing? Um, I don't think anybody's doing it, but I just wondered what you thought about.
1: So I've heard some stories in the US around bispecifics and factor replacement that basically take that approach. I think from a payer's perspective, this could be a really difficult question, but from a practical perspective, maybe is the answer. But I do think we probably need to think about before we get there, we possibly need to think about making sure that the gene therapy is, you know, if it is safe and if it is effective and it does what what um, it, it works the way that you want it to work as an individual and you know in terms of that risk assessment, then I do think we should be looking at providing it to those with mild and moderate in general. And if we can get you know people up to an average of 12%, at least that would be a big jump up. And you know, I think it was Mark Skinner when in paris in 2000 and i eight or it it's been a while but he talked about we should be trying to get the tr- trough levels of kind of 12 percent, 12 uh to 15 percent, and i think that would be um a good space for us all to be in and if we could get everybody up there then possibly let's talk about the adjunct um therapies on, on top of that i'm not sure the payers will do that. And that does need to be taken into account when you're making making a decision. Because if I'll use factor eight as as a simpler example, because uh, there has been that durability conversation. If I get a factor level of 45 on gene therapy, and it drops to 12 in year five, and it drops to five by year eight, then between years three and eight, if I had a factor concentrate or a specific antibody that gave me protection above 12, I'm actually l- possibly losing out in terms of protection in those last three, four, or last year's six, seven, and eight. And that also has to be taken into account. It's, it's how you take all of this information and put it into a conversation. Now one of the, one of the interesting pieces around payment models, That has come up. There's different payment models and like if it works and we pay for it, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, we don't pay for it. There could be bans, there could be all these different aspects. But one one concept could be leasing. So if you have a, a gene therapy and you have a concentrate as a company, then I lease you 12%. I'll give you gene therapy. And if it doesn't work, then I'll give you enough factor concentrate to to maintain a minimum level of five, 10%. 15%, 15%, whatever that, is. maybe that's an option for the future. And you know, the, again, I think we're too early to say, and some of the therapies really, like some of the gene therapies really are at levels that don't necessarily need that additional protection. And then just, it's more the tail end of some of them where, where, this, where that conversation really, I think, comes out.
2: You have a cohort of people out there that say things like, I'm waiting for the next generation of gene therapy. And I th- I think there's, it's interesting that there's still such a contrast between all the different individuals within the community about who thinks this is worth the risk, this isn't worth the risk ever, and then some people I will wait and see. And that's why I think when we speak about factor levels, and, and I, I think it's important for clinicians to hear as well because they'll ob- obviously explain what they've seen so far, gene therapy to their patients and they might throw out those numbers and then a patient might latch onto that and go okay the potential benefit here is i end up with a level of over 50 percent no hemophilia but then we know from seeing the data presented at conferences that not everyone is lucky enough to go to or is even aware they're happening that the range is huge and so all of a sudden that median number i've heard you allude to this in the past it really becomes irrelevant on an individual level i do wonder maybe has the conversation around the benefit of gene therapy become a bit too focused on the factor level i know it's important and i know that there are lots of discussions to be had around it and you see at the wfh gene therapy roundtables i think a couple of years ago they did a vote on what's an acceptable level to be aiming for and i get that there has to be that conversation but thinking about individuals who have to make that risk benefit assessment and focusing on what the benefits of gene therapy could be do you think it's got a bit too factor level focused yeah and it's it's so it kind of
1: one of the things that we do need to I agree with you in terms of the conversation on factor level is important for the EMA and regulators and the NHRA. The factor level is important for finding a mechanism to pay for it. Factor level is important for understanding what our targets are and what setting our expectations on what that can do. On an individual basis, factor level does play an important role impact but we just don't realize it as much so i remember a, a conversation with an individual we're going in to talk to regulators on on gene therapy and he mentioned that before we went in that uh, he like the one one of the best things was that freedom thing oh i got delayed leaving the house couldn't get my factor in before i went to the gym later on and had to adjust i just don't have to think about that and then he was asked, do you live your life by PK guide to Dolphin? And he went, I absolutely don't, no way, no how. <laughs> now, now, those things are exactly the same thing. But there, there's a level of protection that I want to have when I'm I'm hanging around town or going for a walk or going shopping. Well, in fairness, I think my factor level for just Christmas shopping in general has to go through the has to be at least <laughs> at 12. But the, the level then for the level of act- activity that you want. So... I, I think the denual one, then that denual graph, really gives us an idea of what is that base level of protection, and that's where that's where the MEs are kind of at, and we have Biv one coming down the line, uh-huh. and that can give you that level of protection as well once a week, and there's there isn't any messing about with with switching between products or having one product at home and and not having so. I I do think it's important. I just think, I think as patients, our understanding of what it is in that kind of, you we don't think about, I don't think about the damage that I'm causing tomorrow by going, running about and how that will impact me in five or 10 years time. Whereas the gene therapy really has that short-term benefit, long-term benefit because you have that higher protection. But the problem is we can't quantify what level has the best protection or what, where the, you know, Kate, you might be able to see it from the clinic side where people do get the best protection or at what point they feel that they need.
0: There's a couple of things to say there really. One is that the only way that we can measure at the moment that gene therapy is working is to do the factor level. And that's really boring and it's very medical and very scientific what we're not doing, because the clinical trials are obviously doing quality of life assessment as part of the clinical trial. You're not seeing those reported. But guess what? The people that are going into gene therapy have got a good quality of life because they're in those big you know, countries, big regional centers where they've had good access to treatment. They've got a good quality of life when they go in and you don't expect it to get worse. I think we need to start looking at softer things like the impact on spontaneity. How do we measure the fact that you no longer have to think it's Friday. I can't go to the pub with everybody after work tonight because it's a treatment day. Or what is the impact when my child jumps on my head at home at the weekend? Or what is the impact of this on my wife or my children? Or all of those things that I know some people are trying to collect. So it's a bigger picture than the fact rate level. But as Declan has alluded to, the things that people will pay for is the fact rate equivalent level. So that's what they're doing in Emmy. They're paying for the fact that people are not bleeding. And so we've converted them into a mild kind of phenotype. And if gene therapy only got you to a level of two, I don't imagine anybody would pay for it. So we've got to measure the level. Boring, I know. And then we've got to measure all of those things that actually really matter to people about being able to live a, a normal and inverted commas life without thinking about what is my factor
1: level today. I think one of the conversations though that is is interesting is the one stage versus the chromogenic. Yep. So as, as a non lab person, I I have to admit I struggle with at the times, but I know it's incredibly important. And that variation alone was like you have a factor level of using one and using the chromogenic is one thing and you're using the one stage is another so being told that i have two possible factor levels and and it meaning possibly different things actually has a pretty big difference so i think that is one thing that we do need to you know choose one or the other a patient level and understand what the impact is but again a lot of these conversations get lost in we're having all these conversations that are parallel so the pricing conversation Mm -hmm. the regulatory conversation the uh, individual conversation are all going on at the same time and we have to mix them a little bit i think we really need to work a little bit more in terms of the shared decision making process on what it means for you how do you weigh it up and are are you at a space where you are comfortable and is that mostly what matters. I know John John Passi and Steve Pipe in the US have talked about this levels falling below where ideally they would want, but patients are still not taking prophylaxis and are still happy with their decision. It's it's, it's such a hard one because as patient organisations, as clinicians, we want the best for for patients, and we and that is really what we should be aiming for, and and focusing our discussion on, minimizing risk, improving care. As an individual, though, sometimes we just have to be aware that decision is a very individual decision.
0: So I think that's really interesting. So we talk a lot now that this is like the buzzword for 2021, isn't it, shared decision-making. And when you hear people talking about it, it's people like you and Mark and Brian who are, if you like the leading lights of the patient community how do we get to patients who don't have that level of knowledge and understanding about their haemophilia or who actually don't have access to treatment so then the decision making process is totally different so do you want gene therapy today or do you want nothing you're going to go for gene therapy are not you so how do we address that imbalance
1: one of the ways that I like in terms of the European perspective is one, we ensure that the pathway is the same for, for everybody. Whether they're thinking about gene therapy or not, or they want to improve their care in terms of treatment, we make sure that we give the opportunity in terms of a pathway. So that if I'm a, a clinician that treats 70 people in a year with gene therapy, or I'm a clinician that doesn't treat anybody with gene therapy, then that individual gets offered the same capacity for a conversation. So, from a European perspective, we're talking hub and spoke models. You, know, you go, I go to my local centre. I have an initial discussion, and we provide you know a, a tool there that gets through that initial discussion, where I can go away and I can think about it. We then we, we go for the dosing centres, and the dosing centre is basically. Just ensure that full conversation that those seven questions that I mentioned earlier on have a yes um, answer and then figure out whether they want to proceed that way. But I I think that piece has to be uh, systematic. And then we just have to tailor that conversation that was on on the call this morning around that shared decision-making tool. And there's so many ways to do it and different people prefer information in different ways. I think we have to be able to provide the information in a way that, that people really take it in. Like, myself and Luke talked about health literacy a couple of weeks ago, and it, it is so important to just understand what your decision is. I'm, I'm wondering though, as, as, I won't say leaders, because I don't um, know if I, I fully qualify, do, how do we actively listen at the same time on patients, on what they are seeking. If somebody comes in and says, "Don't care, just want to do it." Okay, I need you to think about this and this. Yeah. i like, I don't care, just want to do it. No. Okay, let's slow it down. And then, how do we facilitate those conversations? Because somebody coming in saying, "I've, you know, I've thought about gene therapy for quite a long time. I've weighed up the pros and cons, and I uh, have looked at the other therapies, and I'm happy. Let's proceed." Is someone very different than I just don't want to have hemophilia. Because the answer in that case may actually not be gene therapy, Hmm. but why do you not want want hemophilia? Is it not wanting bleeding is very different to I don't want to feel different.
0: Yeah, I suppose one of my concerns is that people go into gene therapy clinical trials because they know that it's going to cost a lot when it's clinically available and they might not have access to it. And so is that truly informed consent? And I think we have to, as healthcare professionals, be really careful that we are having those right conversations with individual patients. And one of the things that I really loved about Luke was that it took him two years to decide. He wasn't going to have it, he was going to have it he, it, he wasn't having it, he wasn't having it, and then lo and behold, he went and had it. So that really, I think, shows that he'd thought it all the way through.
2: And then even then it was harder than I thought it'd be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You can't predict anything, but it is, I think is interesting. We obviously started off talking about, you know, risk benefit assessment and you can't really talk about that without talking about shared decision-making They're joined at the hip as it were in that conversation. And I think that's, that's recognizing that it will need to be an end up being a shared decision because when it comes to hearing about the risks and the benefits, those are primarily going to come from the clinician and they're going to have to have that conversation with their patients more and more and I guess the more people that go through gene therapy the more random things that can happen we're going to see so suddenly it just and I've said this on previous talks I've done and I, I was on a a panel for the NHF um, conference earlier this year and I did say to Stephen Pipe. How difficult is that decision to help progress someone through gene therapy from your side? Because you hear the whole do no harm element of being a doctor. And we recognize that there are known risks and then these unknown unknowns, which makes me think back. My mum used to call it the heebie jeebies disease (laughs) to my consultant which isn't as technical sounding as unknown unknowns but it's always if we just don't know there could always be something and i is that I, I don't think that's ever going to end really with gene therapy but i think the pressure on clinicians to to help the patients weigh up the pros and cons or the risks and benefits however you want to say it that's a huge burden on their shoulders i think
0: So I think there's something that doctors are no longer the gods, are they? In the olden days, you always did what your doctor said. Nowadays, people make their own decisions. And I think the other thing that's then really important is that decision making can include fellow people with haemophilia, so your peers. So you can talk to people who've now had gene therapy to see what it was like and whether it's the expectations have been met. Yeah,
1: I think those conversations are going to be really important, much much more so before your trial with Simon at the exig- exigency um, trial
0: Exigent, yep.
1: is a really good conversation. It's a really good conversation starter and it's just, it's facilitating those conversations. I think the other aspect that we do have to think about that we don't quite see as much is the If I take a treatment in any of the other treatments and and something happens with that particular product or with that particular class, whatever it may be, then I just stop taking it. Mm -hmm. And that is not the case with gene therapy. I I, I think about the conversations. I think about the information that's coming out all the time around this gene therapy or that gene therapy and this one has been halted and that one has been halted. And I don't know, Luke, how that, field because you if they find another th- risk in another gene therapy space or within that hemophilia gene therapy space, do you go, oh, that is now something that is now a long list of that's now added to the list of things that I could deal with, or if you're on a trial that was halted because you
2: know,
1: I, I don't know, I don't even know how you
2: manage that expectation. Mm. yeah i can see it being something that would create a lot of anxiety for some people at that point like you say you can't take it back it's gene therapy it's in it's in the tank whatever happens in the trial it's not something i could have accounted for it's not something that the experts could have accounted for and so you just have to go that's why we do clinical trials stuff can happen but if something if a heebie-jeebies disease as as my mum would say did turn up a couple of years down the line in my trial or another gene therapy trial then of course I'd have to think about it and ultimately try and not let it impact my mental well-being because th- there's nothing I can do right mm-hmm. I would go and ask all the right questions and ask for more information but there's nothing I can do I think that's The kind of danger of being so involved in the community is that I'm often the first person to, you know, hear about it through whether it's like something on Twitter. I feel like I'm hearing about it just as quickly as the leading clinicians. And I I suppose we have been, we go through this on a regular basis. Going way back, you're talking,
1: you know, HIV, Hep C, Hep B, sorry, non-A, non-B, than Hep C at the time. And the ones that we've seen that would have developed but wouldn't have come through, like Chikinunga and XMRV and, and you know, th- there's this long list of things that w- you, we're hoping the science kind of protects us from. And it has up to this point, And our decision-making process is, it is what it is. And you just take in the information that you can to make your life actionable. And it, it must be really difficult to take all of this information, because it all seems to come at the one time, and then there's just this ongoing flow. So, so I think Steve coined it really nicely a couple of years ago. Like, gene therapy is hopefully one and done for most people, <laughs> but it's not get it and forget it. Yeah, mm. you, you don't just get it and then I finished. It, it, you do have to put thinking into aspects around, you know, the activities that you do now and in the future, your uh, life planning or as in family planning in the short term, the conversation around expectations for what you want the therapy to do. You do have to pull it, I, I really do think you have to put in that conversation a little bit on factor level, not get obsessed by it. But definitely just be aware that if it's lower than you know, a certain percent, then If I feel a bleed, then it's possibly a bleed rather than just aches and pains of joint
2: retoropathy. It feels like a bit of a benefit-risk slider when you start talking about the factor level. Mm. And And I remember saying to you probably last summer about six months post-gene therapy, and you asked a very difficult question of what level (laughs) would you be happy with going into it i would be pretty disappointed if it fell below 20 and now i'm hovering around there it fluctuates again i learned more about assays and then how much more pad you are very and that's why i'm like okay luke you've got to stop obsessing over the factor levels at this point because i can't see the wood for the trees but it's not get
0: it and forget it
2: exactly get it and live
0: with it yeah exactly
2: (laughs) deal with it it's in the tank now but and even then i remember being like okay that would still be a good result but the moment my level fell below the normal range there was part of me that was like ah and then a couple of months later i was like okay it's not a big deal i'm still doing fine and then it fell again and it was like i have to get adjust to that and get my head around it and get to a healthier place with not obsessing over whether or not gene therapy has been a success purely going off of the factor level.
0: And that's why all that other stuff, the touchy-feely, spontaneity, living your life mm-hmm. in a normal and inverted commas way <laughs> is what we should be looking at.
1: Precisely. Yeah. I, I had a really interesting conversation with somebody and, and apologies, I'm going to start talking a little bit about health economics, okay. but they were talking about their health utilities so or their measure of, 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 of how happy they were fell when the restrictions... Were put in place for COVID, and then increased as soon as we have vaccine available, and then has now decreased again because we have Omicron. And I have I, I I personally don't understand that concept because restrictions in terms of you can you don't know when you can do something or not do something. You plan to do a family event and it gets canceled last minute. You have to restrict your movements. You ha- That's called growing up on demand. And I've trained for this, so, so my quality of life isn't as much impact. Now, granted, I'm, I'm a massive introvert, but that has a part to play in it. But these variations make me appreciate what I have at the time when I have it. And I, I think that is one aspect of the gene therapy that, that you're alluding to. To Luke. It's, You know, it is, you know, that literally that freedom. I, I cannot quantify it. I cannot really tangibly grasp that value of hope and freedom. That really is the value in therapy and in cost for gene therapy that makes it an option that we as a society want to continue forward because we talk a lot about the risks because they are bigger than before and they're changing but they're definitely constantly there but we don't realize all of the moments on an individual on a daily basis where something happens and you're like oh you just brush it off and keep going whereas you wouldn't before with Azure Gene Therapy. And and we, we we need to talk more about about those daily moments to really fairly compare the benefits and the risks.
0: Thank you, Declan. I think that's a really lovely place to stop, partly because we've had an hour of your time, <laughs> but also I think it's a really good place to stop. So it's about living daily with wherever you are, with whatever level you've got. So thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for the invite. Thank you again to Declan for joining us on this episode of HemeCast. As you can probably tell from listening, the ideas around risk-benefit assessment and shared decision-making in gene therapy make for a very complex and thought-provoking discussion. With that said, if there are certain aspects you think warrant a deeper, more focused discussion, then do let us know. We'd love to hear the thoughts and questions of our listeners. Your contributions may even help us in developing future episodes and inviting future guests. Finally, thank you to our sponsors, CSL Bearing, ChewGuy, Roche, Sobi and Takeda, whose support makes Heemcast possible.